Hi, friends. Welcome to True Crime with Ivana Estelle. It has come to my attention that I may need to start posting again. I love you listeners, but if I'm going to expand, I need to put myself out there. But trust me, it's a struggle. I haven't had TikTok in about a year. I'm not really on Instagram, except occasionally. And in a time where being connected through platforms on our phone is important, I find myself relishing at the thought of sharing anything too personal online. It's funny, I came up in the age of social media. I mean, I was in middle school when MySpace died out and Facebook became king. I remember my profiles perfectly. I never understood the transition to Facebook, to be for real. I personally liked the idea of designing the layout of my page and having a top eight. Facebook actually got me in trouble. If it wasn't my parents finding my account and losing their minds, it was getting cyberbullied at one point. In high school, things changed. The girls who picked on me kind of phased into the background. It helped that they were known for kind of sucking anyway, but I digress. Social media didn't go away, though. I shudder to think about some of the comments still left under my seventh grade profile. I will say one thing that helped me get through my tough times in middle school to my triumphant growth from eighth grade and up was my core friends, friends who I still love now. Even if we didn't stay in the same circles, we always had these strong bonds with each other. In fact, I can think of distinct groups throughout my adolescence that just held me down. We trusted each other, and as groups changed and readapted, grew or depleted, there were always a core of friends I could count on. I considered myself someone who bounced around. I liked getting along with essentially everybody. Call it my nature, mixed with a trauma response from being the outcast at 12, but it was just my thing. But regardless of who I liked or adjusted to, I recognize that having a few close ones by your side, whether you were officially grouped or not, meant something. Like most teenage girls, I could be petty. I knew what it was like to be jealous or super emotional. I loved hard, whether it was a lacrosse player I crushed on or the best friend I swore I'd do anything for. I also recognize that cliques, for as intense as they could be, were also fragile. There are people I look back on, friends, that I would have made an effort to keep in touch with more, or forgive sooner, or even apologize to. But in hindsight, whether you are inside or out of the group, everyone is at risk of feeling pain at some point. I think a lot of us are just lucky we made it out unscathed. This is the story of Skylar Niece. I actually don't cover teenage or adolescent victims often. The times I have had been very difficult. Dying so young is devastating enough. The idea of having your life taken from you even more so. This case fell into my lap while I was researching another one. And I felt this story may be even more than a cautionary tale. Our story begins in Morgantown, West Virginia. The town is home to West Virginia University, which is even crazier because one of my closest friends from middle school, who I referenced in my long-ass monologue earlier, went to West Virginia. Shout out to her. I actually never visited her there because 
whatever reasons, but from the research, I can tell it is your typical college town. Now, I, Lord, I am talking about myself a lot, but I come from a college town too, but the college is much smaller than West Virginia University. This town reminds me, well, it reminds me of what the city part of Desperate Housewives would look like. Like, if we were to leave Wisteria Lane to grab a cocktail or groceries, we would be in Morgantown. To give you a better picture, the top radio stations listened on, according to Wikipedia.com, go from oldies to country to rock to contemporary Christian, with nothing else in between. It's a peaceful, small town that grew overnight, essentially. In the Star City area within Morgantown, Dave worked at the local Walmart, and his wife worked in healthcare administration. They were your typical hardworking couple. The two had one child, a daughter, Skylar Niece. Skylar Annette Niece was born on February 10th, 1996. She was known for being cute and smart. Daddy's little girl. She was loyal and friendly, and as she got older, in the early to mid-2000s, as many of you can attest, she rocked the heavier eyeliner. Her chestnut brown hair would often be worn with heavy bangs. Gen Z's imagery of millennial fashion is great, but it's very camp. You had to have grown up in the era to know how iconic our looks were. Growing up, Skylar loved her friends. It was her childhood best friend, Sheila Eddy, who she met at eight years old, who really stuck with her. For the next eight years, the two would be inseparable. Despite different classes, they always had playdates and hangouts, constantly stayed on the phone, and entering freshman year at University High School, that was no different. Skylar, at this point, had a super high GPA, and she had her first part-time job at Wendy's. Where was your first part-time job? I feel like that first job, like, is so important, whether it's babysitting or you're a camp counselor or working at the mall. Like, do you remember when that first check hit? Rich bitch energy. The girls were all over Facebook. Photos of them smiling together. Skylar and Sheila literally looked alike. The difference maybe being that Skylar had blue eyes. Once they were settled into high school, they befriended a third teenage girl named Rachel Schof. Rachel had striking long red hair and these piercing blue eyes, similar to Skylar's. Actually, creepily enough, I remember in high school, there were these two girls. What are the odds that they hear this? Slim to none? Fuck it. I'll take the risk. I'm a storyteller. This is what I do. Anyway, they were best friends. Their fashion, I can remember, was very inspired by the Jersey Shore. And I remember when one of my friends ended up joining their duo, except she had blonde hair, not red hair. I say all this to say the fate of this story is much more grim than those three girls from my high school who actually grew up to be pretty normal people. Think like late 20s Etsy vibes. That's them. And honestly, all jokes aside, Skylar, Sheila, and Rachel should have had the same fate. They should be planning their engagements to their college sweethearts or working in digital marketing or hell, recruiting people online to be in their MLM that sells hair care products and essential oils. But they're not. They are subjects of my true crime episode today. 
June 5th, 2012 was a typical summer night in West Virginia. 16-year-old Skylar came home from a shift at Wendy's. She treaded into the house, the smell of fries wafting behind her. She gave her mom a kiss and eventually headed into her room to get ready for bed. The next morning, David, or Dave, had a shift at Walmart and Mary at the hospital. And like normal, they got up and headed out. At this point, they didn't feel the need to check on Skylar. I mean, she's a teenager, it's summer, she works, she can sleep in. But it was when Dave returned home that he noticed something odd. The door of Skylar's room was still closed. He tried knocking, and he didn't get an answer. He called out, assuming she was still sleeping. But then, when he looked at her bed, he realized it hadn't been slept in. And listen, I know. What if she made her bed and left? Well, she made no indication to her parents that she was actually leaving. Dave didn't want to panic, though, so he called his wife Mary. Maybe she knew something. But Mary was a miss. That's when alarm bells started to ring. The next person Dave could think of to call was Sheila, a young girl he'd practically helped raise. She'd become part of the family. You know those friends who are so close that they seem like a cousin or a sibling? Their parents feel like your parents and vice versa? Dave figured Sheila had to know where Skylar was. Sheila answered on the first ring. She told Dave that she didn't know where Skylar was and that they talked at about midnight last night, but she hadn't heard from her. Dave now had reached panic level, and he looked around Skylar's room to see if there was any indication of where she could have gone. He noticed the screen to the bedroom window was in the closet, and the window was open just a crack. The type of crack that fingers could easily rise the window, both open, and use it to close them shut. If you've snuck out your house or considered sneaking out before, you know that bedroom window is vital. My stomach is in not thinking about it. Sneaking out and your parents don't know, like, sounds exciting, but also terrifying. My children will sleep in the attic if they have to. Okay, that's Max, but you at the point. It's dangerous if you leave and no one can account for you. Outside the house, Dave saw a bench and figured that Skylar had left and used the bench to hoist herself out of the house with the plan of using that same bench to get back in. It makes me wonder how many cases there are where teens sneak out with the intent of coming back, but they're counted as a runaway. I truly believe Skylar had every intention of coming home that night. Now, it was time for Dave to share what he'd learned with the police. By 4 p.m. on the 6th, Wendy's called to check in on Skylar's whereabouts. She was a no-show. Skylar to date had never missed a shift. This is actually when Dave was officially freaked out. It wasn't like Skylar had like snuck out and maybe drank or partied or whatever or fell asleep somewhere. She literally was missing to the point that she didn't show up for work. Just as Dave is finishing the report with the police, Mary gets a phone call. It's Sheila again. This time, she sounds a bit more guilty. See, she explains that she hadn't been completely honest with Dave earlier. She had seen Skylar the night before. Sheila, Rachel, and Skylar had actually spent that night out. They were driving around, hanging out, and smoking weed. Skylar had subsequently gotten a bit paranoid and was afraid to wake her parents up with the sound of the car, so she asked the girls to drop her off down the street. 
and Skylar would then plan to walk home and sneak through the window to get back into her bed. The story, though riddled with a litany of bad decisions, sounds pretty believable. I mean, if you're smoking and you've already snuck out, the illegitimate fear that the car is going to make noise outside of an apartment complex could make sense at least in the mind of a teenager. Sheila and her mom ended up coming over and offered to help in the search for Skylar. At this point, Dave and Mary don't care what the decisions were or the reasoning for the sneaking out. They just want their baby home. They went door to door asking for help and sharing photos of Skylar. It was at this point to no avail. The question is, what could have happened? Could someone have been watching the girls? Could a person have caught Skylar off guard and grabbed her? What about the idea of Skylar maybe falling asleep in a woodsy area? I mean, there were a lot of reservation out there. As the ideas whipped to the niece's heads, Mary remembered there was a security camera outside of the apartment. And ladies and gentlemen, it actually worked. Though the footage is grainy, a gray sedan is seen pulling up to the apartment complex at around 1230. Here's the thing. Skylar had actually gotten dropped off by Sheila. This footage then showed Skylar get into a car. The footage is too grainy to tell exactly the model and make of it. But what it does confirm from the pace of walk by Skylar is that she knew who the driver was. Now, it's confusing because Sheila said that she'd snuck out with Skylar and Rachel and they drove around. So if this is correct, then the timeline is Skylar goes to work, gets home, then sneaks out once to ride around with her friends and is dropped off, walks home, then sneaks out again. Are you following? The thing is, Skylar is never seen on that video camera again. She's officially seen as a runaway, and thus an Amber Alert was not issued in her disappearance because the circumstances did not meet all four of the criteria for an alert to be issued. And just so you know, at this time, the criteria is basically a child is believed to have been abducted, the child is under 18, the child may be in danger of serious injury, and there is sufficient information to indicate the Amber Alert would be helpful. In fact, at the time, a teenager or anyone older wouldn't even be considered missing at all. A total of 48 hours have to go by. Now, the thing is, 48 hours is the most crucial time. It's the best getaway time. It's also the time to collect the best evidence. But it can also be considered by law enforcement an overreaction. If you haven't heard from someone in two days, maybe they voluntarily left. Or maybe they just haven't been in contact with you. However, in terms of a child, Skylar lived with her parents. She left with nothing but what looks like a backpack or a bag. Dave and Mary were left to post videos online to beg their daughter to return home. Friends of Skylar outside of the group with, you know, Sheila and Rachel thought that maybe she ran away because she was upset or to get some space. They hadn't heard from her either. They left messages on her Facebook telling her they loved her and missed her. Though these girls weren't Rachel or Sheila, Rachel spent the day after Skylar went missing on a boat with her family and friends. Sheila was actively handing out flyers and tweeting about her missing friend. In fact, Sheila went a step further. She asked to sit in Skylar's room. 
just to be there amongst her things. She was inconsolable and crying. And that best friend love is real. It was as if Sheila was grieving for her friend. Days turned to weeks with no sign of Skylar, no activity on her phone or bank card. How do we know that? Well, of course, bank statements, but also because Skylar left her phone, wallet, and even her contact solution at home. It only reinforced the knee's belief that she was going to come home. Small-time blogs and web sleuths began to catch wind of this case. Rumors went around that Skylar had met someone online or gotten drunk and fallen and hit her head somewhere. And when robberies began to pop up around the next town over of Blackstone, much more sinister theories came about. The money from those robberies allegedly were used to buy drugs. Drugs that were used at a party that Skylar had gone to, where she overdosed and died. Now, my question is, what party is it that Skylar went to without her two best friends, or any of her other friends for that matter? That lead fell short, which meant the last two people to see Skylar alive outside of whoever was in that car was Sheila and Rachel. They maintained their story of picking up Skylar, driving around, sharing a couple of joints, and dropping her back off. The only people to account for this being the two of them. Now, police didn't really have any reason to suspect anything because their story stayed airtight. It never changed. And this case came out during the era of Nancy Grace. Personally, Nancy Grace always gave borderline racist vibes to me, but I remember that she was the original true crime queen. Like, Nancy Grace's word was bond, and in various interviews that she gave, she brought up a good point, that these two girls were the last two people to see Skylar alive. And furthermore, where is the footage of them picking Skylar up? Or even her, like, walking to the apartment after being dropped off? Because we only have footage of her sneaking out for a second time around 1230 and getting into that sedan. Officer Colbank is one of the lead investigators, and she means business. What do they say on True Crime Obsessed? Let the women do the work? She explains her first interview with Sheila was just strange. Sheila was essentially blank in the face. Nothing really to share or add, no emotion. Now, this could be because she was talking to a cop. I mean, she was boo-hooing at the niece's house. But Officer Colbank felt like Sheila wasn't completely honest. Her suspicion only doubled when she interviewed Rachel Schof, who came off the exact opposite. She was nervous as all hell, fidgeting and stuttering. But their stories were verbatim the same, almost as if it were a script. Rachel was known to be a theater kid and, quite frankly, Officer Colbank got the impression that Sheila was the director and Rachel was playing her role as the main lead. But she couldn't quite put her finger on what. Officer Colbank was onto something because Sheila's reputation wasn't necessarily rosy. She was known to be a bit of a wild card. She was known to smoke weed and honestly, a lot of kids did. So I'm not really going to like run with that one because that's not lost on me. But it was her influence on others around her. 
she was known to be shady and sneaky. Once more, in terms of her friendship with Rachel and Skylar, well, it was becoming apparent that two's company and three's a crowd. Sheila and Rachel became closer. I mean, you could literally see in photos online Skylar being pushed to the back. Skylar would tell friends how she felt left out a lot of the time. For example, do y'all remember dressing the same in high school? Okay, so me and one of my friends would do this. We'd plan outfits and it was so cute. Short-lived, but cute nonetheless. Well, Sheila and Rachel would do this too. The only problem is they'd leave Skylar out. Skylar's other friends noticed it too and secretly could see the rift growing. In the weeks before she went missing, Officer Colbank noticed a change in Skylar's social media. She would tweet things like, quote, people can be so mean for absolutely no reason. And, quote, hope you don't expect me to give a shit anymore. Hashtag bye. Her final tweet, sent the evening of the 5th, read, quote, you doing shit like that is why I will never completely trust you. Posts from a decade ago when people are in a different space in life can sound obviously different. It isn't like Instagram where after 24 hours, they seemingly go away. In fact, if you're on Twitter, I bet if you do enough scrolling, you'll find some cringe messages and tweets that you yourself wrote. But maybe we should give credit to where credit is due. Being a teen online, you share your emotions out in the open And Skylar was upset with someone. There was trust lost and she was expressive about it. But the most suspicious posting was a video. Now it's not clear when exactly this video was posted, but it was somewhat recent. The footage shows Sheila in a long sleeve shirt, her hair hanging loosely with a huge grin across her face. As she asks her two best friends, Skylar and Rachel, if they'd rather suffocate or get shot. Skylar's recording the video. She and Rachel each reply, shot. Sheila asks, what about drowning or suffocating? To which the girls reply, suffocating, in unison. Police then get phone records to review the messages between Sheila and Rachel. And here's the eeriest thing of all. The girls don't mention Skylar once especially not after Skylar's disappearance. I mean, they are this indistinguishable trio. They are best friends. One is blatantly missing, and they have nothing to say about it. This is 2012, which means Blackberries, Razors, and those phones that slide are at the all-time peak. We are texting, baby, and you mean to tell me these girls won't have anything to say? Not even an I miss Skylar? Skylar's family still don't think anything sinister is happening with Sheila or Rachel. They just don't believe it's possible. They can't fathom them having anything to do with Skylar's disappearance. Regardless of Skylar's family's disagreements with the police, Officer Colbank and her team continue to look into Sheila and Rachel. More specifically, their movements on the night of July 5th, going into July 6th. And through surveillance, they find something strange. See, West Virginia is on the edge of Pennsylvania, which may explain why West Virginia is a red state and PA is a purple state, but let's not get into that. Surveillance camera 
capture a nearby Sheets resting stop and gas station. On the video, Sheila's gray sedan is seen driving by. They were able to pick it up by the license plate. I want to note how much surveillance video that police had to go through. I mean, they are looking at different gas stations and just watching hours of footage outside of even like the close area of Morgantown going towards Pennsylvania. So that's a lot of video footage. And by the way, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about when I say sheets, basically it's like the Wawa. You can get your snacks and drinks there. They also make these bomb ass sandwiches. I've had sheets in Florida and I think, child, I want to say Virginia. But yeah, that's basically what sheets is. Sheets is your Wawa. Anyway, it wasn't just the surveillance camera that caught Sheila's car miles away from her hometown. And I'm talking like up to 30 miles away. It was also the fact that the cell phone towers picked up phone pings from Sheila and Rachel. And it was still in that area, that 30 miles out area on the cusp of West Virginia and Pennsylvania. They weren't in town driving around. They were far out. And the question is, where were they going? This no longer seems like a smoking joyride. It almost felt like Sheila was on a mission and Rachel was in the car with her. The question is, with Skylar's phone at home, where was Skylar? The cell phone tower ping showed that the girls were definitely not at home. It pinged hours after they said they dropped Skylar off and driven home themselves. They were in Blacksville, Virginia, a good 45 minutes out. Police bring the girls back in for questioning, and this time they both changed their story, admitting to going to Blacksville. They'd simply forgotten that part. Sheila says that it was just she and Rachel who were in Blacksville, that they'd kept the night going after dropping Skylar off. Rachel's story is different. She claims that Skylar was with them. Sheila is adamant her version of the night's events is true. She even said that she would take a polygraph test. Y'all, she volunteered. These people didn't even have to ask her. She thought she could beat the damn machine. It, of course, picked up on deception. Rachel reluctantly agreed to take a polygraph test. But on the day of the exam, she literally jumps out of her father's car and flees, like while he is driving. That may be worse than taking the test itself. Police bring Skylar's parents back in with evidence of the poly, the poly not taken, the phone records, cell phone tower pings, and surveillance. Police were close to an answer. Now, at this point, Skylar's parents have taken to Facebook. They are posting statuses about the case, and they have even gone all out to say that Rachel and Sheila need to step forward. If you can imagine during high school for these girls and everyone involved, people can see this online, which means that they are weighing in on their comments too. I feel like social media used to be way more of a bubble. Like you really knew what people in your high school were tweeting versus now it's way more public for like the whole world. Facebook was no different. It wasn't as many strangers content that you were introduced to daily. It really was your peer group and acquaintances, those connected to you, whether by the area you lived in or the communities that you were a part of. 
I mean, this was all over, especially at University High School. The girls were pressured and constantly questioned. I'm not even going to say this is when bullying works. I literally feel like people were just addressing the girls both online and in person. Rachel, at the time, was supposed to be the lead in the school play. She felt the pressure to perform to a whole nother magnitude. But Rachel began to crack under pressure. In January of 2013, about six months after Skylar disappears, Rachel has another breakdown, similar to her jumping out of the car to avoid taking the polygraph test. Her parents call 911 to report her screaming and running in the streets in their neighborhood. On the call, you can hear a slight scuffle where Rachel punches her mother in the face when her mother tries to take her phone. Rachel is immediately sent to a psychiatric unit. It isn't disclosed how long she's there or what her treatment was like, but upon her release on January 13th, she went straight to the West Virginia State Police. Rachel begins to talk. She admits that she and Sheila began plotting to kill Skylar in science class months earlier. They were joking and then began to get more serious. Rachel wanted to kill Skylar before she left for church camp. So let me just say that one more time. Rachel wanted to kill Skylar before Rachel left for church camp, which is why the July date was picked. She and Sheila packed cleaning supplies and kitchen knives. They decided that stabbing Skylar would be easier since they didn't know how to get or use a gun. Rachel said that she and Sheila had picked up Skylar that night and driven to Wayne Township in Pennsylvania in a town called brave right on the cusp of west virginia they smoked weed and drove around before they finally stopped and walked into a wooded area they told skylar to go get a lighter from the car so that they could smoke again and as skylar turned around to go find a lighter rachel and sheila counted one two three and began to brutally stab skylar Later, it was reported that Rachel even said, die, bitch, as they murdered their friend. What a fucking weirdo. Such a sick and sadistic, evil person. Anyway, once it was over, the girls tried to bury the body, but the ground was too hard. Instead, they covered Skylar's body with branches, and that's where she stayed for six months. She was basically unidentifiable, police were not able to fully confirm it was Skylar until March 13th, 2013. So that car on the footage camera was Sheila's all along. There isn't even any proof that they'd snuck out any time before 1230. The drive is so dark and creepy. The easiest thing I can compare it to is an episode from American Horror Stories, which still gives me chills, where a young girl and her boyfriend are driving down this eerie, essentially empty street to this creepy house. Or if you've ever driven on back roads, you know how dark it is. The worst part is Skylar tried to run away. Could you imagine in the dark woods just trying to get away from your two so-called best friends? who are chasing you with butcher knives, catching you and just stabbing you to death. 
Rachel and Sheila ultimately drive away, changing into clean clothes and cleaning up as much as they could. I mean, this was thoroughly planned out. Police explained when they asked Rachel why, she simply responded, because we didn't like her. Even more shockingly, police seemingly let Rachel go after the confession, which I have never heard of happening, but police had circumstantial but not physical evidence. See, this confession happened in January, and they didn't exactly have a body. I want to note here that there was really good police work. See, when originally researching this case, it kind of felt like the case was solved with a single confession by Rachel. But honestly, this case was solved because the police were building evidence. And I mean, they looked at all those surveillance camera footage. They knew the time and timeline that these girls were talking about didn't add up. They monitored Skylar, Sheila, and Rachel's phone and social media and bank activity. Plus, there were the interviews with the girls and surrounding people. They even went against what Skylar's parents originally believed off of their own gut feeling that Sheila and Rachel were up to no good. And so police wanted to be 100% that Rachel and Sheila were guilty. So that night after her first confession, they placed a wire on Rachel to get her to cooperate the confession with Sheila. But it was to no avail. In fact, the girls got together that night and even boasted with a selfie of the two, which at this point is kind of like a fuck you to the town and the cops. I always wondered, had Rachel come clean to Sheila? Like, did she tell her about the confession? Did she tell her she was wearing a wire? It's weird and gross and deranged, and honestly, it doesn't matter. But police were eventually able to get a warrant for Sheila's car, and they did find traces of blood evidence matching Skylar's. Meanwhile, Rachel continued to give up more information, and eventually it also included where Skylar's body was located. And a part of me feels like if she had recanted everything, the girls may have gotten away with it, but eventually they would have found Skylar's body. See, Skylar's body was seven feet away from the main road and it was barely covered. So I feel like someone would have found her or her remains or her clothes, just something would have turned up. Skylar's family ended up receiving the news on what would have been her 17th birthday. Now, once the news breaks, everyone, and I mean everyone, is commenting. People are heartbroken. The killers, because of their official arrest hadn't been made and they were underage, hadn't been revealed. In fact, Sheila went on to post on Twitter that day, quote, worst day of my life and quote, rest easy, Skylar. You will always be my best friend. See, Sheila hadn't been arrested that day, so she almost was playing a part and playing a role to be grieving as well. But... At this point, the town had been divided. Some people were mad at the police that they weren't moving faster or hadn't moved faster the night of. Others are really honing in on Rachel and Sheila. And so they're mad at them. And then the majority were just heartbroken for Dave and Mary, who are going through this devastating disappearance and then subsequent murder. But as time went on, Sheila's messages, still being able to walk free began to become almost arrogant she tweets quote we really did go on three and quote 
wonder if there is a law and order episode where they don't figure it out. I think there is a high in the fact that she hasn't been caught yet. An ego boost, knowing the police and FBI are involved. She's tweeting this shit around the time that they find that the DNA in her car matches Skylar's blood. And it doesn't take long. Because by May, police arrest Sheila at the local Cracker Barrel. It makes you wonder, when Sheila was crying on Skylar's bed, was there real guilt and sorrow? Or was she almost reliving and getting off on the kill and the secret? Speaking of secret, maybe it wasn't just about the secret that Rachel and Sheila were sharing. About their essential thrill kill. What if it was also a kill to keep a secret? As it turns out, the book Pretty Little Killers, covering the case of Skylar Niece, Skylar had journaled about finding out that Rachel and Sheila had started a relationship that was romantic and sexual. She discovered it during a sleepover. Skylar, weeks after the sleepover, tweeted about telling the whole school the tea that she had on people. Now listen, Skylar is being messy, but that doesn't justify her losing her life. And just because she tweeted that doesn't mean she'd go through with it. These were her two best friends, after all. Finally, even if she did, everything feels like the end of the world at 16. And maybe in a small town of West Virginia, being out at that time wasn't acceptable. I do recall girls kissing girls in high school. Heck, I kissed my first girl in high school. But granted, I grew up in New Jersey. Maybe Rachel and Sheila really feared being told on. That plus the tension, I mean, it was clear that Skylar maybe felt left out. Her two best friends started dating. Where does that leave her? Police believe it was a mix of both. The murder kept their secret safe. They could be bonded for life. And finally, there was some enjoyment in planning and murdering and then hiding it from everyone. It began to become apparent that Sheila had a psychopathic personality where Rachel was more sociopathic. The entire trial experience of Sheila Eddy is going to piss you off. She's literally smirking during it. Her eyes are black. That's an evil one there. At first, she pleads not guilty, but later switches her plea. I do think that as a literal teenager, she doesn't get the seriousness of it all. But I also consider the fact that she is a really damaged person. Rachel's family are shocked by her behavior. They described her actions as unforgivable and inexcusable. I mean, the day after the murder, Rachel went boating. There is a photo of her smiling from ear to ear on a boat with her aunt. The family feels like they don't know what they missed. The warning signs. It is clear, though, that even if there wasn't remorse, there was relief to at least tell the truth. Rachel cried her entire trial. Though one cannot help but wonder if the actress was simply putting on one final show. She was sentenced to 30 years in prison with the possibility of parole after 10 years. Sheila Eddy, who was arrested in May of 2013, was consequently tried as an adult in September. Sheila was sentenced to a lifetime in prison with the possibility of parole after 15 years. The two are currently imprisoned at the Lakin 
Correctional Center in Mason County. So in a sense, they do get to be together for the rest of their lives. In May of 2023, at the age of 26, Rachel went up for parole. According to Eyewitness News, she told the parole board that at the time of the murder, she was in a romantic relationship with Sheila, and that's the real reason why Skylar was killed. She and Sheila were afraid that it would jeopardize their relationship, and she went on to say that she didn't recognize the person who killed Skylar, that she is not that person. She even said that she didn't think she deserved parole because of what she did. That she was so young, but that doesn't change anything. She said that she made a terrible mistake and did not consider herself a bad person, just someone that made a bad choice. Rachel came from a pretty religious Catholic background, and she explains that her family now accepts her sexuality, but at the time, she was so afraid of getting kicked out of her house and the church and just being shunned by family and friends. Dave Neese, Skylar's father, was there to speak in support of his daughter. He said, quote, an accident is when you bump into someone. An accident is when you step on someone's shoe. This was not an accident. He asked the parole board to not grant Rachel parole. He went on to say, quote, because of this malicious monster, my child will never get a limo ride to her prom. Instead, she got a ride in a coroner's vehicle. Also, there was no sparkling gown for Skylar, just a body bag. She will never have a certificate of graduation, only a death certificate, because of this inmate's actions. The board made its decision to vote no into granting Rachel parole. Her next parole eligibility will be May 1st, 2024. If she does her full sentence, she will be 46 when she's released from prison. Sheila will have her parole hearing in 2028, but as it stands, it isn't looking like she'll be released. In terms of whether the two have had contact with one another, I did see from a couple sources, but I don't know how reliable they are. Like I went on Reddit and a couple other sources that Rachel had at one point gotten married and then divorced and that she and Sheila basically like weren't really on speaking terms and basically that Sheila is exactly how you can imagine in prison but because they're not viable sources I don't want to say that and still not that that's what their experience is like in prison the photos of Sheila and Rachel now in prison are cryptic though I mean they really are older versions of their frozen in time pictures on Facebook Mary and Dave have made it their priority to tell their daughter's story. Skylar just didn't deserve this. She went out that night to hang out with her friends. She cared about them and just wanted to be included. Mary and Dave have no forgiveness or kind words for Sheila and Rachel. Dave, in regards to Sheila, said, quote, you, you liar, you liar, you liar. That's the only thing that kept going through my mind. He said in regard to the trial, quote, she looked over at me and smiled a couple of times, trying to get a reaction from me. But I just got up and left the courtroom. Rachel, who shared a statement in court crying, was met with lack of sympathy from the nieces. Sheila has never spoken out. Mary and Dave are rightfully angry. And regardless, they've been stand-up people. 
they are so heart-wrenching to watch in their documentaries. And it's clear that they continue to struggle to come to terms with the fact that their daughter was murdered by her so-called friends. But in any of the interviews that they've done, I never have seen or heard them swear. They never speak in a derogatory way. They are just two parents that loved their daughter so much and are so hurt by this. And I think there's something so commendable about this being able to say, yes, I am still very angry. No, I do not feel bad about being very angry, nor do I forgive you, but I'm still going to be a decent human being because that's who I am. I mean, they were so hard to watch. I was getting angry for them. And I found myself speaking out and speaking in turn. I mean, you've definitely heard me curse on this episode, but even while researching this, all I could find is David and Mary just being loving, kind, mourning people that were grieving the loss of their daughter. Skylar was a well-rounded, lovable individual. She didn't get to make it to prom or graduation. She found herself in the clutches of two evil, lost beings who she trusted. Skylar, and it's very evident, had such a bright future ahead of her. But her passing has also brought on a positive change. See, Skylar's Law was created in honor of Skylar. A West Virginia state legislator from the Nieces Family Home District introduced a bill called Skylar's Law to modify West Virginia's Amber Alert plan to issue immediate public announcements when any child is reported missing and in danger, regardless of whether the child is believed to have been kidnapped or not. On April 12, 2013, the West Virginia Senate unanimously passed the law, but made minor technical changes to the bill, which the House of Delegates voted to accept on the same day. West Virginia Governor at the time, Earl Ray Tomlin, signed the legislation into law in May 2013, as such adjustments on Amber Alerts have also been made. Skyler had a memorial service a year later on July 19, 2013. There also is a beautiful setup paying honor to her memory in the area where she was killed. As her spirit lives on, her story is one that resonates. It's about trust and really knowing who your friends are, but it's also about making sound decisions. By this, I mean those two girls sacrificed their friend for the thrill of it or to keep a secret. And now their secret's out and they'll spend the rest of their days behind bars. For all we know, that could be a good thing. This could have been just the beginning for at least one of the two of them. If they are willing to kill someone that they allegedly loved, it's hard to believe that they'd have any remorse or regard for anyone else. Writing this case brought up a lot of memories of me growing up. Girls just being teenagers. Intense, hurtful, passionate teenagers being harsh, just being young. It makes me grateful that I can look back on it and cringe at some of the things like meaningless teen drama. But it also makes me feel blessed for the lifelong friends that I gained too. And I hope it makes you think back to moments where you were younger. If there's any darkness back there, you made it through. You're okay. And if you know anyone who could be struggling someone younger, or maybe if they seem fine, 
check in and remind them that you're there for them and that you support them because everyone deserves to make it through high school and see themselves on the other side. Thank you all for joining me. Now it's time for my true crime fact of the episode. And this one comes from socialsciencebase.com. There was a survey completed by YouGov. And apparently, 61% of responders said that they believe true crime makes people more empathetic. And 28% believe it makes people less empathetic. 20% think that it makes you even more likely to commit a crime, and and 29% believe that it makes you less likely to commit a crime. Similarly, 60% said that it makes people more vigilant and aware of their safety, and 40% think that it makes people needlessly scared and paranoid. I definitely agree with all of that. I am way more vigilant and way more paranoid than I have ever been since really starting to actually do this podcast. With that being said, I hope that you listen to something a lot more uplifting and reassuring after this episode. This one definitely was heavy. They're all heavy. Please remember to rate me five stars and share this podcast with your friends. Honestly, I'm just so grateful every time I see like the numbers of listeners, even if they say the same week after week, it really just means so much to me that the same people are just tuning into my show. And it means so much to me that I I get to feel so connected with a bunch of people that I haven't necessarily met in person. So thank you so much. And thank you for listening to these stories and these cases. My goal is to always tell them in a way that there's entertainment because it's me, but I still honor the victims and the families involved. I always say, I tell a case based on how I would want someone to cover my case if something were to happen to me. I actually, this is insane, but I have like a list of podcasters that I would accept to cover my case if something would happen to me. I need to like not speak that into existence, but... I don't know, maybe one day I'll make a Patreon and I'll share that list specifically. Anyway, safe journey, my friends. Keep walking in the light. Until next time, with love, Ivana Estelle.